Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show examines the rise and fall of the new media. My guest is Ben Smith, co-founder of Semaphore, and the author of a new history and memoir of his time founding BuzzFeed News. A company once valued at $5.7 billion might be headed for bankruptcy. That's according to various reports. Ice Media reportedly approaching that cliff edge while the change of finding a buyer remains on the table. Now, its potential downfall underscores the tough environment facing digital media companies as they struggle to cut spending during economic uncertainty. Well, it's a grim time for the hot young media companies of the 2010s. In just the last few months, we've seen the shuttering of Gawker 2.0 and BuzzFeed News. Vice is on its last legs, and HuffPo, which has survived, has lost the glamour and buzz it had when it launched in 2005. The disruptors of the old media have been disrupted. As a working journalist who lived through this period, it still doesn't quite seem real. I came up through the old media. I worked for the relaunched New York Sun, a paper where I am now a columnist, which was the last news outlet to actually launch itself as an actual newspaper. I worked for the legendary wire service UPI in the Washington Times. Eventually, I was hired by Newsweek after it was acquired by the Daily Beast, one of the new media brands that has survived. And then I wrote a syndicated column for Bloomberg. So in this period, it seemed that newspapers and magazines were the horse and buggy of journalism. Why would you wait to publish today's news tomorrow, let alone next week? Twitter set the pace. Scoops were measured in minutes, and nothing, it seemed, was too small or niche. The new journalists were younger and faster. The old career arc, where you work your way up from local news to the statehouse to Washington, was over. Recent college grads were now covering presidential campaigns. The big papers and networks could still afford to spend months on an investigation, but a young reporter in Washington really had to think more like a blogger with several deadlines a day. Well, my guest today, Ben Smith, made the pivot from old media to new better than just about anybody else. His blog at Politico was a must-read when the company launched, and then Smith pivoted again and launched BuzzFeed News in time for the 2012 presidential race. His newsroom really was an early success of that social media era. Now, the most famous scoop in BuzzFeed's history was the decision to publish the opposition research sheet known as the Steele dossier. We've covered a lot of this in past episodes. Ben has taken many slings and arrows for that decision to publish the dossier, but I still think he made the right call. When BuzzFeed published it, much of Washington had seen or heard about it already. Indeed, some of the best reporters in the country were briefed months earlier about its content, but were bound not to report its origins as a private intelligence product as part of the condition for getting the briefing in the first place. So Ben reasoned that BuzzFeed's readers should see the document that all these Washington insiders had, you know, been talking about and gossiping about already. And this raised an important question about gatekeeping and the new media. An established newspaper like the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal would not have run a thinly sourced dossier alleging that the incoming president had conspired with Russia to cheat the election he just won without confirming that information. In this case, though, the cat was already partially out of the bag. You know, CNN had already reported that the dossier, which it described but did not get into detail, had been briefed to both Trump and Obama during the presidential transition. The fact that this rumor sheet was taken seriously by the highest levels of the national security state made it a story. If the story had stayed there, it would have seemed far more sinister than it really was. By publishing the document, 
the whole world now could see how outlandish some of the claims in it really were, such as the allegation that Trump paid Russian hookers to urinate on a bed he thought the Obamas had slept in. Donald Trump, we should say, is a notorious germaphobe. Of course, we now know that the FBI's agents found the dossier to be worthless after interviewing the main researcher who provided its contents to the former spy Christopher Steele. And this is why I always thought that the scandal in all of this was the FBI leadership who nonetheless insisted on briefing this to the incoming and outgoing president, as opposed to BuzzFeed for basically letting the rest of the world know what we were talking about there in that initial CNN scoop. That said, it's worth asking whether the old way of doing business was better, because it's very interesting what happened here. The new media disruptor BuzzFeed publishes the dossier, and then every other old media outlet kind of piggybacked on their decision to do that. So it's not like they continued to ignore the story. Indeed, BuzzFeed put the dossier out first. Everybody could see what it was. And then that document provided pretty much the, you know, kind of broader narrative for most of the coverage of the first two and a half years of the Trump administration for cable news outlets like MSNBC and CNN. So it wasn't just the new media making a call. It was the new media sort of being first in the pool. And I want to make that clear. But I still think it's worth looking at the old gatekeeping as opposed to the sort of new non-gatekeeping, let's say. Okay, so the first point is that higher standards for publication do not always prevent embarrassing errors. Let me repeat that. Higher standards do not always prevent embarrassing errors. You can find plenty of stories that were dead wrong in the Trump era that went through the editing standards and all of the sort of checking and nonetheless were wrong, including from the New York Times. But let's go back a little further. Consider a CBS scoop in 2004. This is before the era of social media. It's sort of internet 1.0. It's the era of blogging. And this is about George W. Bush shirking military service during the Vietnam War. And Dan Rather's career ended because a website, Powerline, exposed the government memo that was part of this CBS report. So in this case, a sort of new media, if you want to call it that, a blog, Powerline, it was center-right. The disruptor was the one that ended up being kind of a fact check in the middle of a, of a hotly contested election of one of the old pillars of the journalism establishment, CBS. Okay. It's also true that there have always been tabloids, publications that would run things that the you know other, other press would not, and that eventually, much like the dossier, the big boys would pick up on those scoops. So the classic example here goes back to 1992. Bill Clinton had an affair with Jennifer Flowers when he was the governor of Arkansas, and the story kind of eked out in the 1992 Democratic primary. It was initially broken by the National Enquirer, but eventually the entire media ecosystem became absorbed in that story and what was the first of many bimbo eruptions for the 42nd president. So the era of alleged gatekeepers didn't always keep these sorts of sensational or even false stories out of the national discourse. All right. The second point here is that without the upstarts, the press can become too insular, too safe, and erect too many barriers to publishing unflattering information about favored figures. Let's take, for example, Bobby Kennedy. I know we just did two big, long episodes about him, but I think this is a good story and it's worth sort of illuminating this point. Again, I'm going to share another anecdote from Larry Tai's great biography of him. Okay, RFK, as we covered 
in those previous episodes, worked for the demagogic alcoholic Senator Joe McCarthy at the height of the second Red Scare in America. When McCarthy had drunk himself to death in 1957, Bobby's brother, Jack Kennedy, asked him not to attend the funeral. Jack was running for president even then. And by 1957, Joe McCarthy was a toxic affiliation for the Kennedy brood or really any Democrat, even though Joe McCarthy was friends for a while with the Kennedys. Okay, Bobby attended the funeral anyway. He flies into Milwaukee, but hangs back from the politicians who would be arriving as part of a D.C. delegation. So I want to quote here from Larry Ty. Quote, when the crowd was gone, Kennedy slipped down the exit ramp unnoticed. Nobody was waiting because no one knew he was coming. He rode into town not with a pack of senators and congressmen, but in the front seat of a Cadillac convertible driven by the reporter Edwin Bailey, who was covering McCarthy's funeral for the Milwaukee Journal. At the church, Bobby sat in the choir loft, distracted and alone. And at the graveside, he stood apart from the rest of the officials from Washington. When the service was over, Kennedy asked Bailey and other journalists not to write about his being there. The reporters, already in the Kennedy thrall, did as he asked. End quote. Okay. Now, admittedly, that's not the biggest story in the world, certainly not the biggest scandal for Bobby Kennedy. Is so Go back and listen to those episodes. But it was an important story because Bobby would end up managing his brother's presidential campaign, becoming his brother's attorney general, and then running for senator. And if it had been known that he had attended Joe McCarthy's funeral, it would raise a number of questions in this context, particularly since RFK sort of brushed off the criticism that he'd worked briefly for McCarthy by saying, hey, listen, I ended up pretty much writing the report that censured him in the Senate when he was sort of the staff lead for the Democrats on McCarthy's committee. So I wanted to include this to show that there's times when gatekeeping can kind of spoil into protecting, again, favored political figures, favored celebrities, and so forth. All right. So now let's look at things when there are no gatekeepers, when a news outlet strives to be as feral as the early internet itself. And here I am talking about Gawker. Now, I'm not trying to say, oh, listen, I'm innocent. Uh, no, no, I let my best friend fuck my hot wife. I did. My best friend was in a... Which, that's, that's not... I mean, if everyone's willing, and there's nothing I mean, wrong with there that. There was three willing participants, right. and really, at the end of the day, had an employee of mine not steal my fucking... my surveillance. Uh, only three people to this day would still know about that event. All right, so that was radio personality, Bubba the Love Sponge, talking about his wife and his best friend, Terry Bollea, better known as this guy. We just might blow the whole planet up, you know. Everybody knows that Hulkamania is the strongest force in this universe. All right, so Hulk Hogan, who is at a very low point in 2007, where this story starts, is living in Tampa, Florida. And at the time, you know, according to Bubba the Love Sponge, they went to a strip club. As they were driving home, Hogan's not in a great mood. He's going through a difficult divorce. Bubba, who had an open relationship with his young wife, well, he called his wife Heather and asked her to have sex with his friend Hulk Hogan. So they smashed. And the coitus was captured on Bubba's in-home surveillance system. Fast forward a few years, Bubba and Heather are now getting a divorce. Surprise, surprise. I'm surprised. How could that marriage not have lasted? And Bubba then burns that video from the surveillance to a DVD and stores it in his office. Okay, at this point, one of his employees steals that DVD and shops it around in Hollywood to various other smut peddlers. And normally, this is, you have to remember, this is a, a period of like, you know, Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. This is like a sex tape era. And none of the people in Hollywood were willing to pay for it because 
Hogan and Bubba the Love Sponge's wife, Heather, had not agreed to go public with it. So there was a potential liability there. But there was an outlet that would run a story about it anyway. All right. So on October 4th, 2012, Gawker published a snippet from that video under the headline, even for a minute, watching Hulk Hogan have sex in a canopy bed is not suitable for work. All right. Let's give a little background here. This is 2012. The internet was a very different place 11 years ago. Twitter, which until Elon Musk's takeover last fall was beset with excessive content moderation, pretty much had an anything goes approach. In 2012, users could get away with impersonating other people, doxing individuals who wanted to stay anonymous, like where their physical home address would be published on the internet for anyone to sort of see and harass them. Cyberbullying was okay. A lot of racist slurs were okay. I mean, it was a free-for-all. And in addition to that sort of environment in social media, and particularly Twitter, sites like WikiLeaks, they were publishing all kinds of private government cables or private emails from other you know, companies or academic institutions. And in some cases, such as the famous sort of WikiLeaks case known as Cablegate, the State Department cables, they really endanger the lives of confidential sources for U.S. embassies. And this approach also extended to segments of the new media. For example, you know, you could argue, but I would say Breitbart's first really big scoop was their coverage of former Congressman Anthony Weiner's dick pics that he sent to women and girls online. Gawker published a story on a sex tape once of Fred Durst, lead rapper of Limp Biscuit. Initially, Durst sued Gawker, but then he dropped the suit, apologizing he never meant to ensnare the good folks at Gawker in his suit, and he sent them fresh cut flowers, I kid you not. Okay, in that environment, one can understand why Gawker would not be too worried about a lawsuit from Hulk Hogan. Others had also tried to sue the company, and it went nowhere. Plus, in America, we have great libel laws that protect the journalists and their outlets, as opposed to the United Kingdom, where it's much lower standard to say you've been libeled. All right, but Hogan had something that the others did not, and that is a secret sugar daddy willing to pay any expense to keep the lawsuit against Gawker going. When did you decide that funding another person's lawsuit would be the best course of action to take down Gawker, and when did you set this in motion? My initial view was that uh, what you were supposed to do was you were supposed to take your beatings, um, crouch down, go into a fetal position, and then hope they moved on to somebody else. And, uh, and sort of around 20, 2011, one of my friends convinced me that, uh, that if, uh, if Gawker could get away with this sort of sociopathic repeat behavior over and over, it was this tragedy of the commons. Nobody, um, nobody would ever, um, you know, they would, they would continue to ruin lives one after another. All right, so that was a Silicon Valley billionaire and PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel in 2017. When Hogan sued Gawker initially in 2013, Peter's funding of the lawsuit was a secret. But after a Florida court ruled in favor of Gawker in 2016, Thiel took off his mask, and Peter Thiel had an axe to grind. It was Gawker's sister site, Valleywag, that published a story that outed him as gay. That's what he talked about was, you know, originally I thought I was just supposed to take it when these sorts of things happened. All right, so the question here is whether Gawker went too far. Was it really newsworthy that a once famous wrestler slept with his best friend's wife? Did Gawker need a gatekeeper? Here is Gawker's founder and CEO, Nick Denton, in 2016 on, the, on those very questions. What is the news value in publishing a sex tape? 
Well, first of all, we didn't publish a sex tape. Uh, we published snippets of a sex tape uh, to accompany a story about this famous, famous wrestler who had talked a lot about his sex life, uh, had made it a matter of public interest. Uh, and um, the relationship that he had with his best friend and his best friend's wife. Um, we thought it was a, a valid story. Uh, we still think it is. A federal judge deemed it newsworthy, and we believe the appeals court will find the same. All right, so I think that Denton makes a fair point. Not my cup of tea. certainly purient. It's gross. But I think newsworthiness is best determined by publishers and people willing to click on these stories and not by courts. And if the star of the sex tape is a celebrity, well, that's life in the big city. But Gawker also in its early days published other stories that did cross a line. In 2010, for example, the Gawker's sister site Deadspin published a video of a very drunk young woman having sex and possibly being raped in a bathroom at a bar in Bloomington, Indiana. When the girl asked for the video to be taken down, Deadspin's editor at the time responded that the frenzy will pass and for her to keep her head up. He also begged off when her father called, asking for that to be taken down. Anyway, I should say that editor, A.J. Delorio, would later acknowledge in court that he was wrong about that. But I should say that was the attitude back in like 2010. And admittedly, that's an extreme example, but there were plenty. There's a lot of mean-spirited stuff that Gawker really trafficked in. That's an extreme example, but they harmed also non-celebrities, you know, and not just sort of, you know, big names like a Peter Thiel or Hulk Hogan. Eventually, Gawker lost on appeal in the Hogan case, and the resulting fine forced the company at first to sell off most of its web properties and eventually to shutter Gawker itself. It was briefly revived a few years ago, but closed down again this year. So when the new media lacked gatekeepers, the internet definitely was a meaner place. And by new media, I mean both social media and these companies like Gawker and so forth. Innocent people did get hurt. Reputations would be ruined out of peak and spite. On the other hand, I don't want to live in a world where a billionaire has the power to effectively sue a website out of existence because of a personal vendetta. And I should say, I also don't want to live in a world with excessive gatekeeping. And that is the world that we live in today. When social media companies themselves, responding to pressure from government agencies and politicians, throttle the distribution of stories arbitrarily deemed to be disinformation, thinking here of the Hunter Biden laptop stories from 2020, but there are a lot of examples of this, as we've covered in other shows. Well, you know, the last few years in this context, it really feels like a dangerous overcorrection to the excesses of the early years of social media in the early 2010s. That was an exciting time. The web was a feral place, but it didn't last. The big media giants, like the Times and the Post, adapted to the new world. I guess you could say the gatekeepers won. Welcome to the newsroom. You can bet your right on time. Well, the re-education is delighted to have an old friend of mine, Ben Smith, founder 
founding editor of BuzzFeed, my favorite media columnist for the New York Times, although he's no longer doing that, now the founder of Semaphore Media, and the author of a great new book called Traffic, which is really a kind of a reported part memoir, but just part kind of reported history of social media and kind of the concept of virality in the last 20 years, looking at everything from the sort of rise and fall of Gawker to the rise and fall of BuzzFeed. So thanks so much for coming on, Ben. Thanks for having me, Eli. So listen, I want to start off, this is going to sound like a very general question, but just maybe explain for listeners who maybe weren't there for this, what was Gawker and why was it important? So Gawker was, you know, it was it was a small, at first, a small New York blog that wrote about media gossip. Right. But what it really was, was it took the kind of digital technology of blogging, which is to say publishing words on the internet, you know, without any particular technical assistance, you know, and it, it kind of introduced it to the ossified old New York media world and introduced it essentially by writing mean things about media people that nobody would say out loud, but everybody gossiped about and thus really got their attention. And so in a sense, it was the first digital version of spy magazine, right? Or absolutely. It was the, it was the inheritor of spy. Okay. And just so more, our listeners more who would brutal, I would say more brutal, less witty than sure. spy. Well, spy could be pretty brutal. But yeah, yeah, but but sort of maybe a bit more of a blunt object, but certainly in the tradition of spy. Yeah, and it, there's a lot of kind of British equivalents of that as well, which are nasty, nasty, and just you can't put it down, addictive. Okay, and now with that in mind, because it's actually kind of sad, because I guess last week we saw the end of BuzzFeed, and obviously know a lot of people who were at BuzzFeed, and you obviously do too. What is What was BuzzFeed originally, and why was that? so important to sort of shaping digital media in the 2000 teens. Well, you know, BuzzFeed and Gawker came up in this little kind of downtown New York media scene that, that I write about in the book that was this kind of lab experimental place where people didn't take themselves too seriously and didn't consider the work some kind of fancy journalism they were going to get Pulitzers for. They were just playing around and experimenting with these new technologies. And... BuzzFeed was a side project of a guy who had co-founded HuffPost, which was the real big digital media juggernaut of its day, the first to sell for nine figures to a bigger company, things like that. A guy named jo Jonah Peretti, not a journalist, really a prankster, like a culture jammer right. in the in the in the jargon of the of the aughts. You know, he's most famous for weird pranks like like a website called Black People Love Us. I know, I've a, fi a fictional white couple. Right. Um, you know, pretend, you know, with testimonials from their black friends, just the kind of deeply cringy. And his sister, Chelsea Peretti, is the famous She's, comedian yes. and his sort of collaborator. And so he, they'd come out of, and, they, so, and so BuzzFeed was his hobby side project that nobody quite knew what to make of. It was just a bunch of weird stuff and memes and jokes that circulated, were circulating on the internet. But what made it important was that Jonah really was the first of these folks to see this, this tidal wave of social media coming and to see that all the technical tricks that he had really invented and perfected at Huffington Post around game, getting web traffic from search engines, that something even bigger was coming in the form of what we would then know as particularly Facebook, but also right. sites like Twitter, Twitter and Pinterest, places that people would share things. And that if that's the world you live in, 
the challenge is to create things that people will share. Now, I want to get into that. You do a very good job in the book, but maybe like just describe there's a different kind of ethos and not just ethos, but maybe kind of emotional valence to Gawker, which tended to be very mean and catty versus BuzzFeed, which was just like marveling at how weird and wonderful the Internet was. Is that right? I mean, would you describe it? Yeah. And and yes. And that really affected, you know, their distribution. Gawker was a place that you might even be a little embarrassed that you were reading. It was a guilty pleasure. You know, there's something a little pornographic about it. And in fact, Nick Denton, who created Gawker, also had a porn site called Fleshbot. And and it certainly was appealing in some sense to your worst instincts, or at least it was saw itself as kind of shredding the hypocrisy and the manners of what people would be too unkind to say. You know, BuzzFeed, because particularly as it evolved, the idea was, we want to give you something to share. You're only going to share something that you feel really good about associating yourself with because you're putting it on your Facebook page for your friends to see. And so that is, you know, help out the victims of the of the big earthquake or it's check out this really, really cute picture that'll make you say, ah. So it's a very different valence, as you say. Well, I mean, the reason I bring it up is because if you, I mean, we all remember Gawker. I mean, I've we've all been on the wrong side of Gawker. I, I, you know, have my own complaints about, you know, times, but there were moments with Gawker where if you were to read their stuff from the early teens, it would be completely unacceptable in today's internet discourse. It was like kind of almost like it was the, or maybe you could call it, I mean, maybe you could say it was the dirt bag left before the dirt bag left, but it was using slurs that we don't use anymore whether, you know, I mean, there was a kind of... I would of, say, honestly, it was particularly just incredibly sexist. Yeah, right. But also anti-gay. And there was a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, kind of casually racist. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it was... I know, because I, you know, I came up in that world and and, and as a political journalist, yeah. copied a lot of the, like, techniques of Gawker as a reporter. I mean, I, I, I hope I wouldn't reread my work and feel it to be from a thousand years ago. But, like, yeah, it's... I certainly didn't at the time say I'm appalled by this, but now I look back and think, gosh, like I can't believe they talked about women that way. Well, I bring it up because I mean, a lot of these people kind of ended up becoming, I mean, there's a, there still is bullying on social media. It's just a very different kind of bullying. And I'm wondering, I mean, I'm just curious, you look back at that time of the sort of early teens and it's like, wow, I would never use that language. But there, in some ways, there still is that kind of pile-on culture at times, on, especially on Twitter. It's just, you know, you you would you would do it for something else. You would, you know, you as opposed to, I don't know, like today you would be like, well, this person is affiliated with fascist or something like that. Whereas back then, it would just be like, look how stupid and fat this person is or something. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if that's unique to digital media, even. Okay. I do think, I mean, the one thing that I, and again, I, I don't sort of want to jump around from your reading, but the thing that in some ways was like most eye-opening to me, because I, I, you know, I consumed a lot of this stuff in the aughts. I wasn't part of that scene, but I was, you know how when you get to a scene and everyone yeah. says like, oh man, you just missed like the golden times last year. Yes. I sort of always, everybody feels like that, but I sort of coming to BuzzFeed in 2012 and coming to blogging even in 2004 as a political journalist kind of felt like, oh man, like this is cool, but I missed the earlier time. 
And so part of the joy of the book for me was reporting that out and just going back and being like, what, what, what's going on there? And the thing that actually blew my mind most was was Jezebel, which I, you know, as a guy had not been reading into particularly in 2007, was aware of, was Nick Denton's attempt to start a, a women, an entry in the women's media category, sort of a right. digital competitor to Vogue. And he did that because like he looked at Vogue and saw, wow, this has a lot of advertisements in it. He hired this very brilliant woman, Anna Holmes, who had been kind of raging inside those publications against them and had a real mission to blow them up and did not sell a lot of makeup advertising, but really unleashed these like kind of profound forces that I feel like we all saw, you know, five to 10 years later on Twitter. But, you know, both the sort of power of this kind of digital media just really shake up these really gross ossified establishments. I mean, she and Dodi Stewart were publishing these you know, lists of how few black models were in women's magazines, which was unbelievably few. And immediately these people responded, right? Like the publishers were shamed and reacted. And there was a lot, and they talked really, really frankly about the women's lives in ways that had not been there in, you know, that the women's magazines refused to. And so there was a lot that was like pretty positive and amazing about it, but also they unleashed this unbelievably intense relationship with their audience that like drove them crazy and their writers were obsessed with them and they were obsessed with their commenters and it, and talking to them was like, Oh my God, you like lived through the most intense parts of Twitter in 2007. And some there's something sort of related about that. Like That's the right. power of this kind of I- connection around identity for positive change and for sort of honesty. And then also the kind of really cruel crushing intensity of that relationship with an audience that has this, very specific sense of who you are supposed to be as a journalist or as a writer. Right. And, and well, it, I mean, holds it, you to, it holds you to a standard and kind of an expectation that, that you have to perform. Yeah, there is something to that. And I, and you know what, you're right that you should, you always have to count Jezebel, which is coming from a completely different perspective to balance it out against the dead spin and the gawker, which kind of sometimes sounded like a frat house at times. Yeah. And they all sat next to each other. They sometimes, did some yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just sort of hard. And and by the way, like people weren't, yeah, it's just, it's such a different moment. It's sort of hard to get your head back there. Okay. I want to get, now I want to sort of get to, to BuzzFeed. You come into BuzzFeed. I mean, there was already a BuzzFeed that did just like cool lists and stuff, but you were there to build up the news side of it. And I, you know, I, I, I was in the news, I'm in the news business. I mean, I remember BuzzFeed really did. I mean, it's not just that you, you, you had great talent at first, Rosie Gray, you know, McKay Coppins. I mean, you, you, you brought in great people and you had a great eye for talent, but you pretty quickly kind of established, at least in politics, I remember, I, I would say a real presence. What was that like building it up? And, you know, do you, do you sort of, you should, I think you should take some credit for that, for building a viable thing on the back of a kind of what would at first wasn't even considered to be part of the news media. I mean... You know, I guess I felt like it was a moment when the internet, like the, you know, we political journalists, and I mean, I'd I'd been around at the launch of Politico, and there was this narrow little internet where political people lived that we thought was the whole internet. And really there were, the internet was this whole vast world that the political universe was sort of scared of and incomprehending about, and BuzzFeed really embodied and represented that and had huge traffic out in the world, just wasn't really in the kind of nerd world. And my gut instinct, which was right, which was that BuzzFeed's traffic, it's just scale, it's connection to a big audience, 
would allow it if we kind of put some scoops and some journalism on the tip of the spear just to force its way into the political conversation, whether you liked it or not, just because it kind of embodied for people in politics like this new digital world that they were scared of, among other things. Well, I mean, I would say it was also that there were always political blogs, I mean, from the beginning of the internet. The difference was that I think at BuzzFeed, there was a sense that you weren't just repackaging what the Post or the Times was saying. You weren't just saying, this is what somebody else did, isn't it stupid, which is what a lot of political blogging was. Your great column in Politico accepted. You know what I'm saying? It was more like, hey, we're doing our own original reporting and we're going to compete with you for the exclusive. Yeah, I would say there are two steps to that. First, that right, blogging, quote unquote, initially right. in the way that like a Substack a few years ago, and maybe to some degree still means your unreported, fourth, unedited, 4,000 word, like you've got some thoughts, man. That's what <laughs> blogging had been. And then two places I would say in particular, Politico and The Verge, took that technology, like publishing stuff in reverse order on the internet, and applied journalism to it and Politico and the Verge had really become huge doing that. Like they just broke news, they did, you know, and, and did journalism and did it on the internet as, as these kind of like lumbering legacy colossuses struggled to catch up. And so at Buzzfeed, we sort of took that style and blended it, merged it with the kind of forms and the, you know, the images and the tech, actually the things like optimizing headlines that Jonah had built for a much broader universe of people who care about entertainment. Because ultimately, news is a tiny, tiny little industry compared in the sum of everything everybody consumes. People spend a lot more time watching entertainment, people, you know, and, and always have. And so that's that's sort of what BuzzFeed brought was this larger audience. Yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, so now I want to get into what might be the biggest scoop that BuzzFeed had from, an, you know, we all know it. It was excerpted in The Atlantic You've written about it a few times. It's been litigated, if you're interested. It's the it's the Steele dossier, which, and I have been one of your defenders in Twitter now for some time on this. But talk about that, because this is, I mean, I'm sure they'll teach this in J school for the next 50 years. But you yeah. decided, you got a hold of this thing, and you said, why should the insiders in Washington know everything about this, but the rest of our readers shouldn't? You know, I would say, I, I, let me, you know, every story, every call like this is very specific, yeah. you know, and, 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 and there is, I, I do think there is a sort of big picture point I'd like to make about the dossier. And then there's also, I think that when you focus on the really narrow circumstances in which we published it, it's actually not a close call. The big yeah. picture point was just that I had come from the internet. I, I, you know, come up reading Gawker and I think where conventional journalists thought, you know what, there's only four or five ways to get information out. There's three printing presses in town and two broadcast towers. And so like, we're all going to kind of get together and decide what information gets out. And there's a lot of stuff that's confusing or dumb or maybe wrong. Like we're just not going to let it out or it's, or it's, or it just upsets the status quo. It bothers powerful people. We're just going to not let that out. And there's no way for it to get out. Sorry. There's only two broadcast towers and three printing presses and we own them. You know, that, that era was over. And so yeah. I think I was coming from a place where the presumption is you're, you know, you're living in a, you have to help, your job is to help your audience navigate this crazy stew of information, not to imagine that you're going to prevent information from getting out. 
So that I would say that's my sort of overall bias and point of view. That said, that that wasn't enough to publish a this unverified set of allegations that even though they were, you know, and at some point, and they were, had started to circulate, people forget this, at the very highest level of American society, they weren't just like some some guy emailed me some stuff and I tweeted the screenshot to the crazy email. Harry Reid had written a letter in October of 2016 saying, to Comey, saying, I know that you are in possession of highly inflammatory stuff about Russia and Donald Trump. I demand you act on it, right? Like A bunch of like, legacy she, journalists had been walked through pe- off pe- the record. People, I mean, yeah, was- and by the way, some of them had done what you're supposed to do, which we also did, which was send a reporter to Prague, send a reporter to Moscow, try to stand up or knock down the allegations. Right. Some of them were also in that uncomfortable position where you've been given this document on the condition of, you know, you weren't allowed to use it. And then you start to see it circulate. You're like, wow, Harry Reid is talking about it and making decisions based on it. John McCain is obliquely acting around it. You know, every journalist, every intelligence official, half the senators know about it or seen it and are talking about it and are making decisions about how to treat Donald Trump based on it. But we're not allowed to say what it is. That's a weird situation. I was beginning to think about like, huh, that's a pretty weird situation. We ought to sort of, at some point, let every, let everybody in on the joke. To me, what changes at some point, CNN gets the scoop, great right. scoop by Jake Tapper that and, and his team that like there's this document. It's been briefed to two presidents, the president and the president elect, and it's a document claiming that Trump's been compromised by the Russians. And they say that on the air. And to me, at that point, it's sort of not really a hard call anymore. You've got some, you know, it's sort of the equivalent of somebody standing at a press conference saying, I hold in my hand a list of, you know, 100 communists in the State Department. Thank you. Like, show me the list, right? You can't yes. print a story. And so that's, you know, that's sort of where I'm coming from. And I do think at the time, people on the left cheered our decision because, and to a degree that disturbed me. Honestly, I got lots of thanks. And I was like, I don't, you know, we're just reporting. Like, I'm not sure this is what, you know. Well, in the end, you didn't do them any favors. And, and and now people and now I think the consensus on the right is, was that it was good that it got published, and on the yeah. left that it was really good for Trump. And, and that's not you know you don't think about that. That's not how you make publishing decisions. I would say the one thing I'd like to have back, you know, we published it, and and my colleague Miriam Elder, who knows Moscow really well, had found just sort of specific minor errors. Something was referred, a neighborhood was referred to incorrectly. Some, the name of Alpha Bank was misspelled little stuff. And so, but when we put that and we wrote a piece saying this is unverified and what's more, we found some small errors in it, like buyer beware here. We're writing about this because it's such an important news thing, not because we are trying to promote it. We put, you know, we published that to the web. We linked the dossier as a PDF. Those things separated quickly. And I think we could have done a better job of trying to staple the context to the document. That said, and I think then more broadly, I was sort of, I think I overestimated the extent to which people would say, all right, you know what? I don't know. Like this is, this is what it is. We're going to try to process it. I think with this, I think WikiLeaks is the other thing. Hunter, I think Hunter's laptop is like this too. A lot of people talk about Hunter's laptop. Well, which, which part of Hunter's laptop are you concerned about? Which, which document do you think points to Joe Biden? Like many fewer people know. WikiLeaks too. I, was, I went to a Trump event where somebody was outside chanting, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks. And I had been up all morning actually reading WikiLeaks. And I was like, sir, which, which WikiLeak is, concerns you? What, which one do you think you know, makes you want to vote for President Trump? And he's like, they just all show that she's so corrupt. And I think there is a way in which these documents in this environment 
become sort of totems. Sure. And I think that happened with all of this. Although I would push back on this one thing on the WikiLeaks is that there was a lot of dumb stuff like the risotto recipe for John mm-hmm. Podesta. But then there were some devastating things that were in the WikiLeaks dump. For example, there was a memo that talked about how Chelsea was furious that the management of like the Clinton Global Initiative was so corrupted. And that was like, you know, people well, had she... been writing about that stuff before, but this was like, you know, oh, now you have the sure. document. And I'm just saying that it it depends on the document no, that you're talking about. It's like Right, no, I know no, I I agree. We you know, I think that there, you know, Clinton the, the speech that Goldman Sachs that Clinton didn't want reported. Yeah. There was a reason she didn't want to report it. There was embarrassing stuff in there. I don't think there was anything that was I mean, I think, right, I think, I mean, I don't think people came into it thinking that the Clinton Global Initiative was squeaky clean. No. Read that, and it massively changed anyone's perception. I think it was mostly kind of confirmatory. I'm, I'm trying to think if there's, but but I actually, yeah, and, and I think, but, but I guess what I mean is just that it took on a symbolic importance and overtook that campaign in a way that had to do with the style and the novelty and the drip drip of the distribution of information, which was, you know, I think, genuinely one of the history's great intelligence operations. And I mostly, probably like you, think that Russian interference in the 2016 election on social media is an overblown story, that Cambridge Analytica had no impact. Yeah. I think people who say that, like you, ignore how powerful WikiLeaks was. What, what do you mean by that? No, no, it's okay. I, mean, I, want to... I just think it was incredibly effective Russian government intervention into American politics that probably that arguably changed the outcome of the election. Do you not? You must, right? I think that's obvious. Well, I mean, when you get... Which, you, which what, part of that do you disagree with? I don't disagree that the Russians interfered. That the, I think the Russians have hacked. Well, let's although, just talk about WikiLeaks, because all the other stuff, okay. they threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall, it was pointless. Okay. Let's okay. just talk about WikiLeaks. Let's talk about WikiLeaks. Okay, so my view is, yes, there. I believe the indictments from the Justice Department, although we should say they've not been adjudicated and eventually... The most important ones were dropped, largely because the front companies that the Russians were that that were being basically indicted were like, okay, fine, let's go to discovery. And the Justice Department said, nope, we don't want to give up our sources and methods. But that to right. me is not. I I still believe there were detailed enough where I'm like, okay, this this is a Russian operation, and I know enough about how the Russians operate that I'm I'm convinced that the Russians did the hacking. And that is, and putting it out on WikiLeaks the way that they did, probably did have an impact. I, I would say, though, that if you're talking about what the election was, I mean, I don't know, Comey's announcement, he was reopening the Hillary investigation. Oh, sure. That's what Hillary there, thought. It's hard to say. And in a close election, there's a thousand things. Okay. But I think people who want to blow off Russian interference, and I understand why you want to, because there's so many annoying people. No, but I, it's not that I want to blow claims. it off. I'm fine with acknowledging. I think we're on the same. Uh, yeah, I just think WikiLeaks was a, it was a pretty important historical moment that for whatever reason, he doesn't really fit anybody's story at the moment. It's gotten written out a little bit. I think that's right. Okay. But anyway, that's said, we're off topic. No, no, but we should stay on this for just a second. That said, that you could, I think you can have two thoughts in your head at the same time. You're saying it was really bad what the Russians did, and it benefited Trump. But what? Oh, Hillary, and there was some pretty interesting information in there. Absolutely, and there was interesting information. But also, Hillary's relationship in getting this stuff to the or the you know I don't know you want to call it remove Mark Elias's relationship through Glenn Simpson. Um, oh, getting this stuff to the FBI. And how this turns up into an, a FISA warrant and how the FBI 
had all kinds of reasons to think this was all crap and yet was, you know, continuing to present this as evidence, not just before the FISA court, but also as part of their investigative strategy, how the Mueller team then sort of wanted to continue to use this as a, a like a, a fair point. And then how the most elite media would then bolstered the credentials of people like Christopher Steele in really, if you read like Jane Mayer's New Yorker profile of Christopher Steele from 2018, go back and reread that. It's an utter embarrassment at this point. So there's like that is lots true. Of although, bad stuff although you going say, around. Yeah, but I, and I think, I mean, I have tons of bad stuff going around. But I mean, I we knew his credentials when we published the dossier. We didn't, you know, I didn't know him. I never didn't know in detail. But he had been involved in particularly the FIFA corruption investigations. Reporters knew him and thought of him as a serious person. They did not know what we now know. But it wasn't like his credentials were a joke. Well, that's why I blame the FBI more than anyone else, because it was the FBI that was investigating it. It was the FBI that was warned by some of their own people. It was the F it was Comey was specifically warned by the CIA not to like include this in the, you know, briefing to the to Obama and then Trump, which is how it became a story. So there was a whole lot of that where people who would be in a position to know more than us, who had made contact with his main subsource and everything like that would have reason to say, wait a second, this doesn't add up. This is, these are not high-level Kremlin sources who are giving you this incredibly good inside information. Right. This is rumor upon rumor and you know, inflated into something that it clearly isn't. And in that respect, how is that different than you know, disinformation that you know, social media companies are supposed to guard against? It's a classic piece of a disinformation. What I mean by that is, the information that was collected by this firm and then presented as a serious kind of intelligence report in 2017. This is not, not again, not, I praise you for all the caveats. It's not about BuzzFeed. I'm I feel like about, suddenly I'm just listening to your podcast, Eli. Oh, uh, sorry. All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> fine. But my point is that that's the, that's the real issue, which is like, at what point, you know, are we going to at least come to terms on that? You know? Yeah, uh, no, I agree with a lot of what you just said. Okay. All right. Well, moving on. I want to now get to, I have to say, so I was never a big fan of Gawker, but I was always really uncomfortable with its demise. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people feel the same way because Gawker, and I think this is true of a lot of Twitter too. They started as these like rambunctious outsider kids throwing tomatoes at these powerful people in right. ivory towers. And you know, gradually over time, they became more and more powerful. And by the way, these companies like Condé Nast that they were covering started to collapse. And they were pretty soon like the cool kids picking on this kind of like enfeebled establishment. And so I think both that kind of mood changed and they didn't sense it. And then also specifically, there was stuff that they carried from an earlier internet. I would just say specifically publishing sex tapes was yeah. something that lamentably it was sort of new and in the aughts, you know, Paris Hilton, there was sort of a like, Oh, this is, what is this? Maybe this is something celebrities do to promote themselves. Like maybe this is acceptable. I don't know. And not that it ever was to, and, and but I think as like society was like, Oh wait, people are able with digital technology to like take these intimate videos. Many people have them on their phones. It's appalling that anyone would, would steal them and post them to the internet. It's a real crime. It's not, 
Right. And that Some is what happened with, with the man and we so, know as Hulk Hogan. Yeah. And so, well, so, but Gawker, it was sort of part of what they did. They'd published some a horrible video of a girl maybe getting sexually assaulted in college. They'd published some celebrity sex tapes that the celebrities at least kind of pretended to laugh off. They'd published Brett Favre's dick pics. They'd linked to this really awful stalking video a stalker made of Aaron Andrews, the sportscaster. And then they had published this sex tape that Hulk Hogan in some complicated story involving Bubba the Love Love Sponge. Anyway, too much information. Hulk Hogan sex tape. And by the time they reach a courtroom in 2015 where where Hogan has sued them, it's like this is in 2016 there like society has now definitely decided this is totally unacceptable and lots of people have intimate videos and photos that And by the way, this is a great right too. I want to just compliment praise your your chapter on this. I think you deal with the complexity of this really really well because you end up feeling sorry for the editor, A.J. Delario, in some ways, who's going through drug rehab and the disintegration of his relationships with Nick Denton. And also you're like, I cannot believe you said when asked by lawyers, so how how young should would it be okay? What 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 what's a sex tape you wouldn't run, children? How young? Four. So, you know, that, that was, was like I mean, he was being dis- it was a dismissive. I know it joke was a joke. I know it was terribly. Yeah. It was a terrible but there was joke, just a level it, and it was just a level of cavalierness about this. So I think they were going to this was something that was going to get them into trouble. They were in some ways creatures of a, playing by the values of previous era, whatever. Meanwhile, Peter Thiel, who San Francisco billionaire, who, who Nick Denton had written about, I would say had been cruel to had written, had written about him being gay in kind of a mean way. Yeah, not not illegal, just mean, had launched a secret obsessive crusade to destroy Gawker, which came in by funding Hulk Hogan's litigation against them. And then we find out after Gawker is ruined. Yeah. And I I guess I think that if it wasn't a loathsome thing to do, he wouldn't have kept it secret. Like Uh, often you can tell that people are doing something wrong because they're hiding it. And this seems like a pretty good example of that. Whatever the retrospective. After it was done, he said it was me. Right. He got, I mean, he got caught. And then okay. said it was him. Yeah. So, yeah, there was something about that that I said, this is not okay. There should be some sort of, I mean, I don't know how to do it. I just, I just remember having these sort of mixed feelings about it where it's, I don't, I mean, I, I think you have to accept, or let me ask you, I mean, like there, clearly you can't have a world where there's no such thing as like libel or defamation lawsuits, right? I mean, there has to be yeah. some disincentive you know, in the era too, you can't just, you know, defame somebody without consequence. That's why they're the, yeah, but, but the, there's also, but you, but, but ultra rich people using right. the court system to harass their enemies is, and just generally sort of power using the courts to harass their enemies yes. is a pretty disturbing tactic. And when it results in shutting down a news site, even if you don't like the news site, that does, that is a kind of danger to, I think, a free press, even though it's not a traditional yeah. danger. But I would also say that, but it, you know, but it is simultaneously true that Gawker, you know, they didn't invite it, but they left themselves open to it because yeah. they were doing outrageous stuff that was liable to get them sued. So now I want to sort of transition to the end of BuzzFeed, which just happened. What are your comments on that? Like, why? What? What happened there? I mean, you get into some of the beginning of the end in the book towards the yeah, end. Yeah, I would say but, of BuzzFeed News, the, the yeah. part of BuzzFeed that I, I helped create. I mean, it's incredibly sad for me. And, and I think like the, you know, there's a big picture and then there's a stuff we screwed up and there's somewhat different stories. The, the big picture is 
that, you know, we were building a news organization at a company for the social media age and rode that wave and that tide of social media incredibly effectively to immense scale. And as it crashed and knew that was a huge vulnerability that we were totally, that we were very dependent on Facebook and to a lesser degree, Twitter and Pinterest. And just as that ecosystem crashed there, you know, Buzzfeed broadly crashed with it. More specifically, I think our, you know, we had initially built the news operation, you know, in a way it was, it was sort of a demonstration project to build credibility and seriousness for Buzzfeed. I think that's probably in some sense how investors would have seen it. I mean, I just saw it as news and as sort of pushing the boundaries of news and it, and when people got, and and when social, there was a short period, let's say 2012 to 2014, people kind of liked the idea that your Facebook feed is this mix of cute cat pictures and baby pictures and silly stuff and hard news. And it's all mixed together. How useful and interesting. I think as politics got really toxic in America and around the world, say 2015, the rise of Trump, people started to hate that, that mix. And so that kind of core idea that BuzzFeed News was this sort of part of a broader, fun package stopped working. We then tried to split it off into a new thing. And I think, you know, at some point early on should have stopped, you know, I think we were funded by venture capital and with this sort of idea that growth is the whole goal and then you'll figure out the monetization later, like... In retrospect, we should have spent less money and focused harder on on making it, which at the, you know, I, I do want to say at the very end of BuzzFeed News over the last few, you know, year or two, Karolina Vaslaviak, this very smart editor who who ran it at the end, was really frantically trying to do and making a lot of progress and they kind of ran out of time. Yeah. Well, it's a sad, anytime, just saying, you know, listeners, anytime there's a news operation, publication goes out of business, unless it's like Der Sturmer or something, I mean we who care about the Republic of Letters should mourn it because it's less jobs for journalists but, and less choice for readers. So, I appreciate um, your citing the Sturmer objection, Sturmer. Yeah, there's no such thing as a, as a totally consistent rule. Tell me a little bit about your new venture. I read it every morning, Semaphore. It's basically, it's newsletters and email. Is that right? I mean, it's, tell me yeah, about I it. Mean, yeah. yeah, so I mean, I think our... You know, one interesting thing right now in digital media is that things are broadly splintering. You reach people in different places. We're on the web, but email is the main way to get us. We do events, we have videos. And I think one thing that I kind of really learned and internalized from early BuzzFeed was just when there are these moments of huge change in the way the world is organized and information is organized, there are these big opportunities to go and kind of ask consumers, like, what could we do better and then to do it? And I think at BuzzFeed, and in the early internet, it was, there's this scarcity. Imagine this, there's this scarcity of information. You know, like I can only read this one website and and what if what if I could read all the best things in the world that all my friends were talking about? How great. You know, 15 years on or 10 years on, it is, the challenge is, I feel totally overwhelmed by all this garbage. And meanwhile, I don't trust anything. Right. And so how do you try to address those? And so we're trying to both, kind of talk to people in this very transparent way. You know, we have our journalists and when I write, I say, here are the facts, here's my point of view on them. And by the way, like Eli totally disagrees and here's something, a paragraph from his piece disagreeing with me. And and then and then we also do try to gather other relevant articles and stories from around the web. So you don't have to do that thing. To me, like the most disturbing thing that news consumers and I do all the time, which is I read an article in a publication I love and respect and think, huh, this is probably true, but I'm now going to go Google the subject and read six other articles on yeah, the same right. thing. 
and try to triangulate what actually happened. And so we try to kind of like, we're trying to re respond to that moment and to give people a kind of transparent, trustworthy, collated vision for, and, and, you know, to do it. And, and I think these chat. So that's interesting. Global, what you're looking, what you're yeah. looking to do is sort of say, all right, well, this is like one take on this event and here's another take and here's another version. Yeah. And by the way, we're yeah. not interested in like alternate facts. Right. Of but, course not. And I think, but I do think, you know, somebody, I was somewhere recently, somebody asked me like, do you think we can all get back to like a common narrative? And I was like, oh my God, like, like, let's not get too ambitious here. Like, what about just, just common facts? Like, like narrative feels out of reach right now. But if we could just like, if, if journalism could inch toward having some agreed upon facts again, that would probably be a win. Well, there was a video going around before Tucker Carlson, the news that he was fired from Fox. It was a speech that he gave at Heritage where he was actually addressing this point in some ways saying, I came into Washington when you would work at a think tank and we would marshal facts and there would be the liberal think tank and the conservative think tank and we would agree on 80% and we would try to convince each other with better arguments. And that world no longer exists. And then his argument is that because the liberal elites want to castrate your children and do all these terrible things. Now, I'm not agreeing with the full Tucker here. But I am that I think the first part of what he said is that I remember that world when I came to Washington, too, and it does seem like it doesn't really exist. I mean, that was the world of journalism, I think, that we came into where it was totally normal that you would have a cocktail party in Washington where, you know, you would find a Benny Johnson, as you write about in your book. And, you know, along with, you know, somebody who came out of the nation or something like that, and it was totally fine. And there was a sort of understanding like, all right, we would basically agree on all this and we don't agree on this and let's talk about what's better. And that's politics. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the sort of digital media was part of a broad assault on all sorts of institutions, media institutions, yeah. political parties that, you know, did a ton of damage to them and left them pretty shredded. True. I mean, it, it came out of a moment where institutions in the Iraq war and in, and in the financial crisis had, you know, done an enormous, people had lost faith. I mean, had, had done all enormous amount of damage to themselves. Like this, it's not well, like... The, yeah, the gatekeepers had failed. The gatekeepers had kind of discredited themselves to a yes. degree I think people forget. But I also think, you know, I don't think most people think that the direction of travel toward having zero functioning institutions is particularly delightful or healthy no. or something they want. So I think there's, so I don't know. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that, the pendulum doesn't swing. Right. I think like, I think I do think, you know, your question sort of presumes that that's just the direction things keep going until we're all just like living amid atomized rubble. I kind of think in media, at least, which I know best, there's a lot of flight back to established institutions among consumers who are sick of the chaos and interest in new ones also and trying to sort of establish new ones. So let me just ask it like this. I, I I'm fascinated by this myself. How do we how do we get back to gatekeeping, responsible gatekeeping, without all the problems that existed before the internet? I mean, before the internet, the gatekeepers, you know, made it very difficult for all kinds of movements that have gotten lots of visibility to have a voice. I mean, just look at like the history of gay rights in America. And it took for a long, long time for people to actually cover it and say that this is a thing that exists. And it was, you know, only a kind of, you know, so how do you get back to responsible gatekeeping that has earned the trust of readers that isn't 
excluding things that need to be covered? It's really a hard question, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, responsible gatekeeping. That really sounds like the the center for responsible gatekeeping. Oh, that could be the name of your new. Please no. That could be the name of your new think tank where where you have cocktail parties with, <laughs> with earnest young liberals and conservatives. I mean, I think it's a situation in which people are going to kind of pick their own gatekeepers a bit more. Fair enough. Okay. But maybe a plurality of them have gotten their kicks out of watching. Donald Trump light the country on fire and would now like somewhat more responsible gatekeepers. I mean, at some level, yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, I, the gates are, are harder to keep. and But there, it's also been a moment of this huge, disorienting technological generational transition where, I mean, part of what was happening on Facebook, I think, with politics is people like genuinely disoriented by these new technologies. Well, part of the problem with Facebook was that they they started off with newsfeed being, there was there were human beings who were actually you know, making sure that like crazy Romanian fake news pieces didn't get into people's feeds. And then there was a legitimate, I don't know if it was legitimate, but there was some reporting that said, well, all these people lean left and it's unfair to conservatives. And Zuckerberg said, okay, fine, let's just have an algorithm do it. And then what do you know? The algorithm totally screwed everything up. And then we had this huge problem of fake news in the news feed. Actually, as as a leading historian of this period... (laughs) I don't I'm basing that's that what... on Stephen Levy's. Book yeah, I mean, I think that's book, a, yeah. that's sort of it. But actually, like, and Stephen's book is actually great and a good read on this. But more specifically, I think, I mean, this was news. They were not mostly thinking about news or caring about news. They saw it as sort of an annoying distraction. Mostly, what they were focused on was people be spending time on Facebook. And the thing that they decided, the sort of measure for spending time, and what would make people spend time on Facebook was engagement. Right. which meant liking and sharing and commenting. And what we found at BuzzFeed was, and, and this I wrote about this in the book, is you know we had a quiz, for instance, which state should you live in? And it was broken every uh, for sort of dumb technical reasons. Lots of people defaulted to the lowest letter in the alphabet, which was Wyoming. And then lots and lots of people typed in, you know, were commenting like, hey, idiots, I don't want to live in Wyoming. And Facebook saw this as signal. This is people engaging. This is engagement. Let's show this quiz to everyone in the entire world, which they did. It was a great day at BuzzFeed. But the lesson was was just that that conflict, essentially. They, they were looking right. for conflict and they got it. I see. They took conflict as a positive signal. Right. Okay. And in fact, they, they, then, they called it meaningful social interaction. And and that and, and that's really when they poured gasoline on the fire. They introduced a measure called meaningful social interaction, which is me telling you to kill yourself seventeen times in a row. Right. I see what you're saying. Okay. So that's well, they certainly did that. I mean, are, do you blame Facebook in some ways for the atomized, you know, the sort of dual epistemological weird world that we live in now, where there are right wing facts and left wing facts? No, I actually, I, I mostly blame them for and in social media in general for forcing the two well actually i don't i mean i think it's complicated i partly blame facebook for that i think another thing that social media was really good at doing was bringing you into contact with the absolute dumbest and most awful version of your of people who disagree with you over and over and over because right. that, that's the thing you're most likely to react to and against then twitter said hold my beer yeah, yeah. I'm sort of more talking about Twitter there. Yeah. Well, Ben, this was a joy. Thank you very much. I recommend the book. I've read most of it, I should say. By the time you'll hear the monologue, I've read all of it. 
but it's good stuff and congrats on everything and congrats especially on semaphore and you know we'll have you back at some point thanks it's wonderful to talk to you eli absolutely this has been the re-education with eli lake a nebulous production please find us wherever you find your podcast and if you are listening on apple podcasts please leave a five-star review it helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing